0: On this week's 51%, we continue our series speaking with women religious leaders. Rabbi Deb Gordon discusses how music can help build connection and community. Underneath, besides the power of the music and the
1: words themselves, is this connection, intercultural connection.
0: And we also speak with Julie Seltzer, a scribe trained in the art of writing holy Jewish texts. Coming up on 51%. I was
2: standing around seen in a movie the whole world was a movie back then I had my sunglasses on I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Lita, I wasn't really in it I didn't really get
0: it you're listening to 51% a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences thanks for tuning in I'm Jessie King This week, we continue our series speaking to women religious leaders and celebrate the different ways that women worship, particularly across faiths that may be traditionally male-led. Our first guest today has been the rabbi at Troy, New York's congregation, Bereth Shalom, for almost 25 years. Rabbi Deborah Gordon, aka Reb Deb, has been hard at work bringing renovations to Bereth Shalom. The congregation currently resides in the state's oldest building in continuous use as a synagogue. And she's been brushing up on her technical knowledge to keep members connected with hybrid services during the coronavirus pandemic. At the time of our conversation, the Delta and Omicron variants of COVID-19 were on the rise ahead of the holiday season. So you'll notice that I kept my mask on as we met in person at the synagogue. But Gordon was eager to share the ways her congregation has come together during these pandemic times. She says female rabbis aren't uncommon nowadays, especially in progressive reform congregations like hers but she found herself on the path toward becoming a rabbi before that was the case at a young age. She says she got into it for the community.
1: It started out that when I was at Jewish summer camp, I was just a little bit more interested in the ritual part of things and the, you know, celebrating Shabbat, Sabbath, or any other of the Jewish pieces. And I remember, I mean, when we were 12, maybe. Are you going to be a rabbi when you grow up? And the funny thing is that, aside from Regina Jonas, who was ordained in the 1930s in Berlin and didn't survive the war, the first woman was ordained a rabbi in 1972. So this would have been like 74, 75. None of us had probably ever met a woman rabbi. The funny thing is that it never occurred to us that we couldn't, that I couldn't be a rabbi. As I got into college, I discovered that one of my skills just because of the home i was raised in was leading services with a lot of music integrating music and words and nurturing the community that way and i had to decide actually cantor or rabbi and while music was my first way in what i decided was rabbis talk and cantors sing which is super simplified i had things to say over time it turns out that I have all kinds of skills that nurture community.
0: What's an example of like, the song that you particularly like?
1: Well, besides the fact that there are 100 million of them. Okay. So here's one that, that I reintroduced on Friday night. I don't know why it came back into my head after really several years of not being around. But it's the last line of the Book of Psalms. Kol to Hallel Hallelujah. So Yah. At the end of Hallelujah, that's a name for God that's like a breath. Right? You're supposed to actually pronounce that H sound at the end. Yah. Kolhanashama, all that breathes will praise Yah, all that has breath. So it goes, Hallelujah, Hallelujah 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 Hallelujah. Hallelu, hallelu, hallelu 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 kol on shama hallelujah hallelu hallelujah Call on shama te hallelujah hallelu hallelujah but what's really magical about that that tune was created by Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan who is Pakistani I think but someone possibly Jewish contemporary Jewish songwriter Craig Taubman brought together this Sufi chant and these words because the original words were Allahu so invoking God by the name of Allah which is a cognate to the Hebrew Eloah and just means God so underneath, you know, besides the power of the music and the words themselves, is this connection,
0: mm-hmm. intercultural connection. Uh, you said that you, like, you had things to say and that you wanted to help nurture this community. Like, what are some of those messages that you were hoping to get out there? Well, I can't
1: tell you what my messages were when I was yeah. you know, 24
0: because I don't particularly remember.
1: Mm-hmm. But at the core of my life, as well as my rabbinate, is a two-word phrase from Genesis chapter 1, where it talks about humanity being created, B'Tselem Elohim, in God's image. Now, I am not taking that in any literal, physical way. And the whole stories of the Torah, to me, they are our sacred stories. But that's not a comment on their historicity. It doesn't matter to me if they happened that way or not. What matters to me is that these are the stories that nurture our community and this idea that every human being is created of infinite worth and infinite possibility. That's, to me, the basis for the radical assertion of justice. I am not personally much of an activist. Politics is not my thing. Community organizing, eh, I'm an introvert. There's only so much that I can do with people before I have to recharge by myself. But I can use the stories and the teachings of a 3,000 or more year tradition to leverage community action, individual action, to bring hope. It's a lot of what I've been doing the last two years, is helping people stay connected to each other, providing perspective, reminding people that we are hoping to be post-pandemic at some point, and that our pre-pandemic, like normal, life was post the last pandemic. So of course this one's going to come to an end at some point.
0: Describe for me what your services are like here, especially during COVID.
1: Well, during COVID, as you can see, we have chairs spaced apart. We've been requiring masks and mostly people are attending, still attending online, but it's important to me that we do it over zoom so that it remains interactive and the singing, the loss of singing, has been one of the hardest things, but one of the things, let me tell you about the High Holy Day services. Mm-hmm. Right? So the first year they were entirely virtual. The choir director, our choir director, Dan Foster is also a tech wizard. He wasn't at a keyboard, he was at two different Mac computers and I was at the front, but we leaned into the medium, right? And over the summer he brought choir members in one at a time and made some of those Brady Bunch or Hollywood Squares, depending on <laughs> your, your generation, and made those music videos of some of the most beautiful pieces. And we hired a congregant who's a videographer who had, whose work had been affected by COVID to put together nature montages with the choir singing in the background. Yeah. We had quiet time with beautiful images on the screen and people writing things in the chat and adding names for healing in the chat and names of people they were remembering for the memorial prayer in the chat. In terms of bringing people together, it's allowed us to remain community.
0: Aside from COVID, like one thing I've been asking people is this sort of like, what are some of both the opportunities and obstacles facing your religion as a whole right now or your congregation? You know,
1: It's not how I look at the world. Mm -hmm. I see people, and in particular young people, looking for meaning. Mm -hmm. And if you, as a religious community, can be real and meet people where they are and with what they need, then people want to be there. Then you're offering something, then they become you. Mm -hmm. And this is something that this congregation has been really good at. I mean, when I arrived, it was already a welcoming congregation. gay and lesbian members, which in 1997 was not nearly so common as it is today. Today, there are a lot of young trans folks who are either interested in becoming Jewish or who were raised Jewish and really don't know if there's a place for them in the community. And I guess we have a reputation out there because that's a lot of the, a high proportion of the young people that I see. The challenge is to be our best selves. The challenge is to have faith. But this is not faith in God. This is faith in humanity, in the future, in the reality that the principles and ethics and values that we prize are worth sticking to even when it seems like it's going to be not to your advantage. There's a reason that they are ethics and morals and values and you find out what they really are when it's tough. And I'll give you a quick example. This year is the Jewish Shemitah year. It's a year the seventh year in a seven-year agricultural society in which land was left fallow, debts were remitted, and indentured servants came to the end of their indenture. Right, This is all laid out like in Deuteronomy. I think only the land and maybe the debt part is still followed among some Jews in Israel, and I should say Israel-Palestine because that's important to me. So we studied about it last year, and the congregant who organized that study decided she wanted to organize a loan to the Community Loan Fund this fall which would then be immediately forgiven. In other words, so it was a donation Mm -hmm. rather than an investment loan, which is what they usually do. And you could approach that from a synagogue leadership perspective two ways. You could say, oh my God, if we're asking people to donate money somewhere else, that's going to take money away from us. Or you could say encouraging generosity, encouraging people to live their values will encourage people to value the synagogue as well, which is the response of our leadership. We ended up making an over $3,000 donation. So that's, that's an example of, I can't answer your question about problems with problems and challenges because challenges are opportunities. You know, I'm not an eternal optimist in the sense that I believe everything's gonna turn out all right, but I am a person with hope. And it's not just based on feelings, it's based on, hello, Jews have been here for over 3,000 years. Whatever it is, we've seen it before. And there may be personal suffering and people may die. And, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We are, I hope, still in the middle of a reckoning with systemic racism. It's not that everything's okay, but we will get through this.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like me to know or that you want listeners to know?
1: Well, You wanted to know about specifically being a female religious leader. Mm -hmm. I think as a lesbian, I navigate the world a little different than straight women. My assumptions about what my relationship is going to be to both men and women, and non-binary people, is different than many heterosexual women, not all. I think that sometimes my congregation has looked at me with expectations they might not have had of a male rabbi in terms of bending over backwards to be understanding and compassionate and so on. I am not entirely sure, because I don't tend to lead by setting boundaries. I tend to lead collaboratively. Mm-hmm. And it's not that men don't do that. So it's, it's hard for me to say this is because I'm female, even though I feel it. But I think that on the occasions where I've deviated from that, it's probably come as something of a shock.
0: Just lastly, like, uh, for people who are maybe interested in like, participating in a service or Zoom or in person, like, what are the details? What should they know?
1: They should know that this is a warm and welcoming and friendly congregation. The service is a combination of Hebrew and English. If you're going to be in person, we ask that you, you register ahead of time. Anybody's welcome on Zoom. But also, know if you're coming from a really short Protestant service, Friday night services are usually an hour and a quarter. Um, High Holy Day services are two and a half. Yom Kippur morning is probably three. Rosh Hashanah morning may also be three. You know, I try and keep it moving, I try and make it something that speaks to people and touches them. But, you know, when you're, you're not talking about being in and out in 45 minutes for a Jewish service, at least not here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Our next guest says she worships through inward reflection and quiet work. Julie Seltzer is part of the Stam Scribes, a collective of progressive Jewish scribes from around the world. The Stam Scribes are some of just a few women to claim the title of Soferit worldwide. With a quill and ink, they patiently and artfully transcribe the various religious texts needed for holy rituals and prayers. While Seltzer says she grew closer to her Jewish faith and learned Hebrew at a young age, she came to the craft almost unexpectedly.
3: In terms of what got me interested in the scribal arts, I was living and working at a Jewish retreat center when my mother was diagnosed with late stage cancer. And it was a few months before she died that this idea, which seemingly out of nowhere popped in my head that I wanted to learn the art of sacred Hebrew calligraphy. I'd always loved Hebrew. And I was already, like I said, involved in Jewish practice. I even chanted from the Torah on the Sabbath, the Torah being one of the objects that is handwritten by a scribe. But I really had never given much thought to who wrote them and what that process was even like. I mean, at that time, facing mortality in a way that, you know, that, that was very close to me, I think that I was drawn to a practice that was about transmission from one generation to the next. It's also a practice that demands a certain quiet that I think I was craving at that moment in time. So I just decided to start learning. I (laughs) found what I could find on the internet and took it from there.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about why scribes are important? I think it's fascinating and in learning about this, I was surprised that you can't just like go and pick up a printed copy of something.
3: Right, exactly. A lot of people don't realize that the Torah is written by hand, along with um, some other sacred objects. Of course, the Torah is also printed, and we learn from printed copies, but the handwritten copy is what is chanted from as part of the ritual of reading the Torah out loud in a synagogue space. I'm technically what's called a soferet stam. Uh, stam is an acronym that stands for the objects that we're trained to write a Sefer Torah, that is the scroll of the Torah, Tefillin, um, which are religious objects there are these small boxes that are wrapped around the head and the arm and inside the boxes are small um, handwritten scrolls, sections from the Torah. And also a Mezuzah, which is parts of the Torah that comprise uh, most of a Jewish prayer called the Shema. And those are placed in small boxes And on the doorposts, you may have seen like a small rectangular box on the door of a Jewish home. The other thing that's written by hand by a scribe is the Book of Esther, which is read on the holiday of Purim.
0: So you mentioned that you learned a lot of how to do it online, but what was that process like? How long does it take to, I guess, master this craft?
3: I was really a beginner. I had never even done any calligraphy in my life. Pretty early on, about a couple months in, I found uh, I found a teacher by the name of Jen, and I started to learn with Jen weekly, and what we did was we both learned the technicalities of the practice, that is more the calligraphy, because it's, it's traditional to write with a reed or a feather with liquid ink, and the other aspect is I had to learn all of the rules for how this is done because it's not just the calligraphy. It's a whole series of traditions about how one goes about it. So for example, the scribe sets an intention before they even start writing that they're writing for the sake of the sanctity of that object. They're not writing for any other reason and that their attention is focused on the writing.
0: So this is for radio, so unfortunately we can't watch as you write, but help me visualize the process a little bit. How long does a typical piece take?
3: Sure. So it really depends what you're writing. A mezuzah, that will take a day or half a day to complete, but a Torah will take much longer. Uh, Torah has over 300,000 letters in it. It takes at least a year. It takes me a year and a half, to be honest. Uh, Maybe I'm just a slower writer than some others, but between the writing and also there's the proof reading, the proof checking, these days there's even a computer program that checks a Torah for mistakes, um, and then you can go back and, and fix any errors, because once it's in use, it can't have any errors in it, and if it has mistakes, then those mistakes need to be fixed within a certain amount of time
0: you're doing it in ink right so if you make a mistake how do you go back and do you have to go back like start from the beginning i can't imagine that there's like white out
3: right there, there, there's no delete button and white out would, would not look so good so the way that mistakes are corrected is that the ink once it's dry of course is scraped off and then you can rewrite the letter you never you would never be in the situation where you had to start the whole thing over the very worst case scenario would be that you would have to write one of the sheets over so the Torah is written on. Separate sheets of parchment of animal skin and the sheets are stitched together so in one of the classic layouts there are 62 sheets that are sewn together. So if I made a major error in one of those sheets, I would have to rewrite the sheet. So a major error would be something like, I skipped a line and didn't realize it. And you can't scratch off an entire column because it would look terrible and yeah, it would also take forever. So you would really have to write that um, that section over, but most mistakes can be fixed. Something that's interesting, a tradition that we have is if there's a letter, but it might look a little too much like another letter, you ask a child, and if the child correctly identifies the letter, then the letter is good. It's fine. And they make the determination.
0: I like that. I think that's cool. What's the hardest part when you're doing these? Are there letters that are more difficult than others? Are there particular items that are tricky?
3: Yeah, there are definitely letters that are more complicated, more difficult to write than others. For example, the letter shin has three different elements and uh, kind of curved, but also straight. So it, it's a little bit more difficult to make than some basic letters, say a dalid, which has a roof and a leg. And in terms of overall projects, I, I don't think there's any one object that's more difficult to write than another, except that mezuzah and are often written very, very small and very small print. And that makes it challenging. They also happen to have an additional rule. The rule being that all the letters have to be written in order. So if you wrote the mezuzah and then found an earlier mistake, you can't actually correct it because you will have, you will be writing that letter after all the letters that have already been written, which is not permitted. So you have to be paying extra close attention when you're writing one of those objects.
0: Is it becoming more accepted for women to become scribes? Is that more of a common thing?
3: I wouldn't say it's common. I would say it's growing. We have actually a group of uh, women, mostly, um, who work together, share resources, are very much connected, especially in this digital age, and we're all over the world. But we're still a very small group. I mean, I personally know basically all of us, or most most of us. (laughs) It would be unusual to hear of, that there is a woman that I didn't know about um, somewhere in the world though though it has happened and, and there are starting there is starting to be more and more women who are learning but I have to say it's still quite unusual scribes learn from another scribe so you have a teacher in the past that used to be sort of the, the most common scenario was a father teaching his son there is a s- school in Jerusalem, but women are not actually allowed to go to the school. So in traditional circles, the writings that we create are not accepted for the most part as kosher in the Orthodox world. So it's, it's complicated. Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, Jen, the teacher that I first found when I looked around for a teacher, I realized everyone was giving me the same couple of names uh, because they're just there were barely any People willing to teach a woman. And there were barely any women who had learned and who were able to teach. In fact, Jen is the first woman that we know of to write a Torah scroll. Um, she finished her first Torah in 2007.
0: Do you have a, uh, a favorite passage or story that you'd like to share with listeners?
3: Wow. They're like babies. You can't, can't choose a <laughs> favorite. <laughs> um, But, you know, in different moments of my life, I've been drawn to different sections of the Torah. When I was first starting out, I loved a section in numbers. And the reason I loved it is because it repeated itself. It was like 12 paragraphs that essentially are the same exact thing with slight differences in the names of the people. And I loved it because I could practice and get better at it each time. Now I might say, mm, this part gets a little dry, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I tend to be drawn to, you know, to the earlier like narrative stories, especially the story of Joseph, who is taken and enslaved in Egypt, but then over the years is appointed second in command to the Pharaoh. I think I like the drama. <laughs> I, my background is actually in theater. I studied theater in college. And so I just like love those intense emotional moments, right? Joseph, I mean, his father thinks that he's dead and he finds out so many years later that he's alive and he gets to see his son. And for Joseph, he in some you know, in some he was betrayed by his brothers. I mean, he didn't behave so well to them, but but still they they betrayed him, sold him. And that moment of forgiveness and reunification is I think is really emotionally beautiful and poignant.
0: All right. Well, lastly, how would you say being a scribe has shaped your outlook or your understanding of your faith?
3: Wow, I think there are a lot of people who are searching for something meaningful. And I think Judaism has a lot to offer in this realm. There's no neutral way to be in the world, right? We're always experiencing it through a particular lens. And I think the Jewish lens, not that there's one Jewish lens, but the way that I experience it, Judaism is marked by the weekly cycle and the yearly cycle of holidays. And for me, this really helps mark time. In a way that you know the secular calendar doesn't quite do it for me, Um, and it helps provide some structure and meaning to my life. I hope that Judaism will evolve the way that language evolves, kind of naturally through its continued use, and everything that's in use changes. Right, the religion is not meant to be a museum piece, frozen in time, but these texts, these core texts like the Torah, I do hope will stay intact because the Torah is, it's like the shared conversation piece, right? So if we think of it kind of like a book club, you need to, you know, you need to anchor the discussion. You need the thing that you're all talking about. And I think this is much of what Judaism is and can be a conversation, like a fascinating discussion across time and space.
0: Well, Julie Seltzer, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much for inviting me and for highlighting women and and women's work and and worship.
0: That's a wrap on this week's episode of 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Chartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks to Rabbi Deb Gordon and Julie Seltzer for taking the time to speak with me for this week's episode. You can learn more about our guests and find episodes new and old at wamcpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll continue our series Speaking to Women Religious Leaders next week. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was
2: every single girl I was nobody else I was so sure myself so. I was 15 and a half was a hollow life and I lost my cool somewhere along the way at night on the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool